We made it back from Heathrow Airport. <laughs> I only got frisked four times. I must look like a terrorist. They just couldn't keep their hands off me. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 9, where we're going to continue to work our way through Luke, and we're getting into some really good stuff. As a matter of fact, Luke just gets better and better as you work through, and as we shall see, contains some of the strongest and most definitive calls to discipleship in the entire Bible. Most of us have had vaccines of one kind or another, you know, for things like, you know, polio and smallpox and um, things like that, you know, the yearly flu or whatever. And vaccines are interesting because when you receive a vaccine, you're actually receiving what you don't want to get, what you don't want to receive. Uh, the difference is that when a vaccine is prepared, the microorganisms that cause whatever disease or sickness it is, they, they are either killed and or weakened or some of the parts of them are extracted or synthetically reproduced so that when you get an injection and it enters into your system, your body creates what is called antigens. And the antigens then create kind of a barrier, um, get ready for, that your body remembers that these are bad guys. And so when the real deal comes along, then they're all ready to fight off the real deal. And so you don't get sick. It's an uh, incredible thing after you think of that happening, you know, over millions and billions of years by chance. It almost sounds like there was a creator, a very smart creator, who, you know, organized everything. But this is very similar to something which happens in the lives of church-going people. Sometimes people come to church, and maybe the church, you know, doesn't teach real strongly, very light teaching, maybe small doses of Bible. Maybe you grow up in the church and from a very very early age, you go through the Sunday school program, the youth program, you're kind of getting a lot of exposure to church, but you really aren't hearing the truth clearly. You aren't being confronted with the truth. And over a long period of time, you just have these feeble doses given to you. You never have the gospel really preached to you strongly. You're never exposed to the enormity of your sin and offense to a holy God. You're never threatened with hell. Never told about specifically how to receive the free gift of eternal life. And because of this, you become inoculated to the truth. Vaccinated. Maybe your mind builds up spiritual antigens to God's word in the form of excuses. Uh, uh, you know, deceptions, rationalizations. And when the truth finally arrives in full strength and power... Your mind's ready to ward it off because you've been able to deal with smaller doses before. And people like this sit in churches every week hearing the truth but never responding to it. And hell will be filled with people who were churchgoers. You know, if you just want to do something to make me cringe, talk about getting people churched. 
People don't need churched. They need saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Many people are churched. You can't, getting them into the building doesn't get them saved. The word of God may cause in some inoculated churchgoers a little bit of guilt. It may convict them some, make them even feel uncomfortable, but they're able to leave and shake it off because of the antigens of unbelief and deception. And then they're able to just continue to live a life contrary to God's will, and it doesn't really bother them at all. And there's a danger, even in the lives of believers, of becoming inoculated to certain truths. Let me just give you an example. You, you know that the New Testament says we are to obey the governing authorities. And some of you right now, just saying that, you're going, oh no, he's going to talk about. And so, your conscience is already saying, you know, warning, you're driving down the road. There's a speed limit. If you don't know what that means, that's the maximum speed, the limit to which the law allows you to drive. You look down, you're driving faster than that. And then you say, well, everybody's doing it. I'm a safe driver. The road conditions are good. Besides, the laws are more like guidelines. (laughs) And since we are sinners, we make excuses for why it's okay to break the law. And we're good at it. We're lawbreakers. The other day I was riding my bike. I went up the street and then went up another long hill and... When I finally got to the top, it was about 97 degrees outside. And I thought, that was, this was dumb. This was a dumb time to go riding a bike. <laughs> so I finally get to the top of the hill and I start coasting down the other side. And there's this long, smooth grade downhill. And it felt so good. I started picking up speed pretty soon. I, I just couldn't go any faster. I was just blasting down the hill. And about halfway down the hill, there was a stop sign. And even before it got there, I thought, you know, um, I'm on a bike. I'm not technically, I'm not like a car or anything. And besides, I can hear really good. I mean, you know, I can hear if a car was coming and I'll look both ways before I get to the intersection and I blew through. And then all of a sudden, Jack, Jack, my conscience started talking to me, Jack, what are you doing? You just ran the stop sign. Would you do that if your kids were here? God's here. And I just said, get out of my mind. You know, those, all those Bible verses, they torment you. And it was at that point that I had an option. I had an option either to listen to my conscience, which is informed by the word of God, And give God the glory by stopping at the next stop sign. And there was one. Or to ignore my conscience. And in doing so, sin upon sin, harden my heart. And do what was pleasurable and easiest for me. And you know what? If I ran enough stop signs... I could probably do it and not be bothered at all. I could sear my conscience. And it wouldn't even bother me. 
Now, there might be one or two other examples you might think think about in your life. I will let the Holy Spirit take time to work, work you over from here. But as we approach the text of Luke this morning, I want to focus on this, that knowing the truth is not living by faith. I have preached on this plenty. I will do it more because it appears over and over in the Bible. People deceive themselves into thinking that they are Christians and they are pleasing the Lord and walking with the Lord because they come to a building where the church meets and call themselves Christians. That is not living by faith. And as we come to Luke chapter 9... Starting in verse 18 all the way through verse 55, Luke very strategically picks a whole bunch of situations that describe private conversations Jesus had with his disciples. Private conversations. Now, Luke, as the more you study Luke, when you get into the details, you realize how masterful and how precise Luke is. He has an agenda. He has a reason for everything. If you could just figure it out. And sometimes he has multiple reasons and they're stacked up. It's really quite brilliant. But in this section, Luke is working on some private conversations that Jesus has with his disciples. And according to Mark 8.27, Jesus is ministering in the villages near Caesarea Philippi, which is north, slightly east of the Sea of Galilee. Philippi is an interesting little area. It's really quite lush and green with uh, lots of streams. It's a beautiful place. So he is around there somewhere. Remember that in Luke 9, the beginning of the chapter, Jesus sends out the 12 and he sends them out because he wants them to start practicing what they've been learning. He's been teaching them, modeling the truth before them, and now he sends them out with power and authority to both preach the kingdom, to heal all manner of disease and sickness, and to cast out demons. And so they go out by twos and start doing what Jesus asked them to do. Then apparently, out of nowhere, Luke inserts this small comment in verses 7 through 9. If you look at Luke chapter 9, verse 7, notice what it says there. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about who? Whom I hear such things. And he kept trying to see him. What apparently happened is that when Jesus sent the twelve out, John the Baptist was still alive. But when he sent them out, um, they were probably out for a month, two, three, four, we don't know, going about to all the villages, doing what Jesus told them to do. And it was during that time that John was arrested and then had his head cut off. Now Luke takes... What at first glance seems to be a rather random, out-of-sequence comment, and he inserts it for a couple of reasons. The first reason we talked about last time, to let us know that the disciples were being sent out into dangerous territory. In fact, John the Baptist loses his head over it. Secondly, Luke includes this little section about Herod because of Herod's question. Who is this man about whom I hear such 
things. This question then drives the, 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 the private discussion Jesus has with his disciples and the episodes that follow. First, we see that Luke begins to answer the question, who is this man, by telling us about the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus, of course, feeds the 5,000, multiplies the fish and the loaves, and, and to a huge crowd, multiplies them miraculously, which pretty much renders him to one category, God. And he is able to do this incredible thing. He is either God or he's wielding the power of God. I mean, that's it. And so that is the first attempt or first stage in Luke answering the question, who is this man? Now we come to our text in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22, where Jesus works this even more. Follow along as I read. And it came about... Starting in verse 18, and it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, who do people say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah. But others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, from this portion of Luke's gospel, I want you to consider three very important questions about Jesus' identity, and then we're going to look at the proper response in light of the correct answer. The first question is this. Who is Jesus according to the world? Look at verse 18. And it happened that while he was praying alone. And I stop there for a moment. We have seen this many times before. And we have learned that Jesus was a man of prayer. Jesus was constantly praying, asking the Father for help. We have also pointed out, and it's interesting to note, that the greater the circumstance, the greater the decision, the greater the trial facing Jesus, the harder he prays. And so that's what we see him doing here. He is praying. Of course, this teaches us that all of us need to pray too. If you were here a couple weeks ago when Edward preached on Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8, uh, he talked about that, about our need to trust in the Lord and to make the Lord our trust. If you weren't here, you need to listen to the sermon. It was a great sermon. And it just teaches this fundamental principle that if you're going to please God and not be cursed, you need to constantly trust him. And how we do that primarily is through prayer, asking God for help, asking him uh, to empower us, to give us wisdom, unloading all of our trials on him, you know, letting him bear our burdens and trusting him to be sovereign and to supply us with what we need. Look at the middle of verse 18, where we read the disciples were with him. We've also uh, just stopped there. We've already looked at this quite a bit, too. We've talked about what is discipleship. Discipleship isn't you, you know, getting together with me and me kind of, you know, teaching you something. That's part of it. But it, it it involves instruction and modeling. It involves not only knowing the truth, but living the truth. 
When you disciple somebody, you want to instruct them, yes, but you also want to model whatever you're teaching them. And this is what we see Jesus doing. This is what discipleship is all about. And we've beat that into the dust. Now look at the end of verse 18. And he questioned them saying, who do the people say that I am? And this is the first of three questions that the text prompts us to ask and answer. And each answer to each successive question becomes more significant than the previous This is the first and least significant. Who do the people, the masses, the general populace of the Jews say that I am? Who do they believe Jesus is? Well, look at verse 19. The disciples begin to answer. They answered and said, well, John the Baptist. Now, why would some think Jesus was John the Baptist? Well, both Jesus and John the Baptist preach repentance Both Jesus and John the Baptist didn't fear men. Both Jesus and John the Baptist stood up to and condemned the religious establishment. Both Jesus and John the Baptist attracted masses of people. And the followers of both Jesus and John the Baptist were baptized. So you can see why they thought that he might be John the Baptist and risen from the dead. Look again at verse 19 and notice the other popular guess was that he was Elijah. Now, why would they think this? Well, one, Elijah never died. If you remember, he was taken up to heaven and there was the fiery chariot and all that business. Uh, He never died. He and Enoch were the two people in the Bible who never died. They never died. And not only that, Malachi chapter four, verse five, God predicts the second coming of Elijah that Before the great and terrible day of the Lord, God would send back Elijah to restore Israel so that it would not be struck with a curse. Not only that, Jesus was obviously a prophet like Elijah. And not only that, because Elijah preached fearlessly and Jesus preached fearlessly. And not only that, because Elijah performed miracles and Jesus performed miracles. And so Elijah was a really good guess. The problem is... It was a wrong guess. He wasn't Elijah. Finally, look at the end of verse 19. But others were saying that one of the prophets of old has risen again. Now, why would they say this? Well, because of what we just talked about. Jesus wasn't your average cult leader getting a group of people trying to get fame and power for himself. He was a formidable person. A teacher like no one had ever heard teach before. A miracle worker like no one had ever seen miracles performed before. And so he was obviously a prophet. He was obviously of God like Nicodemus said when he came to him at night. We know that you are from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. It is a no-brainer. Jesus didn't quote anybody else when he taught. He didn't ever have a footnote. He just said, this is it. This is the truth. With unflinching conviction, just like the prophets of old who called people to turn from their sin and turn to God. Jesus was a prophet, but they were not sure if he was the prophet, the one prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 that God would send. Or if he was some Old Testament figure resurrected to beat on him some more. Or if he was a new prophet. 
Now, to bring this text home, we might ask, what about the people of Burbank? Who do they say Jesus is? The Jesus asked the disciples, and we got the answer for the people then, but who do the people of Burbank, the people that you work with, your neighbors, your friends, who do they say Jesus is? You know, very few believe in the right answer today. Some people don't even believe that Jesus existed, that he's even a historical person, which is amazing, a very ostrich-like technique. You know, I don't want to deal with it, so punk into the hole. It's like saying George Washington didn't exist. Well, I never saw him. He didn't exist. Others believe he was a great man and a great moral teacher. But nothing more. He wasn't God. Still others believe he was God, but with a little G, which really means he wasn't God at all because there's only one God and he's got a big G in front of his name. But for the most out there, Jesus was a man who lived a long time ago, had a group of followers, and over the years, myths have arisen to you know, make people think he was born of a virgin, but we don't know that's true. We all know it's not true that he was the son of God, but we all know that's true. Not true either. And, 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 you know, he died on the cross with the sins of men and yes, he was crucified, but there was no atonement thing there. And he definitely did not rise from the dead. That's what most people believe about Jesus. After all, we live in a modern society. Everybody knows that people don't rise from the dead, that, that virgins don't give birth to children, That God maybe doesn't even exist. That we're just a product of random chance over millions of years and material that peered out of nowhere and intelligently stuck itself together. So instead of turning from sin and yielding to the sovereign will of Jesus Christ, what happens is, is men, because they want to sin and they want to sin with a conscience that isn't nagging at them, because it really ruins your sin if while you're sinning, your conscience saying, neat, 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 warning, stop, stop. It just ruins the whole thing. Then you take the reason for having a guilty conscience and you just deny it and sear your conscience so you can sin freely without being bothered. C.S. Lewis stated it this way in his classic work, Mere Christianity, quote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. End quote. Josh McDowell distilled Lewis's reasoning down into this. Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. You see, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, he is the Lord God. And if Jesus is not who he claimed to be, then he's a liar. Because he's not the Lord God and he said he was. 
And since his claims are so outrageous, if indeed not true, then he would surely have to be a lunatic. And while most people do not come to such sharpness in their reasoning and logic about Jesus, it still remains. If you're going to say Jesus is Lord, if he's God, then you better live it. You better live it. The logic is inescapable and shows the absurdity of saying Jesus was a great moral teacher while at the same time he's a liar and a lunatic. That just doesn't work. Either admit that you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God but the devil from hell or bow at his feet in humble repentance and submit to his will for your life. But don't try and play the fence. There is no fence. There's the high ground and hell. If you admit he is who he says he is, he is the judge as well as the savior. He will cast all those who do not submit to him in hell. He said it. And knowing the truth about Jesus, again, is not living by faith. And this brings us to our next question, whose answer is even more important than the first. Who is Jesus according to you? To you. Look at verse 20. And he said to them, the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Jesus now has left the masses. Don't tell me about the populace. I don't want to know what the popular opinions are. But I want to know what you think about me. He uses the emphatic you here. What that means is he is saying, what do you yourselves individually say I am? Who am I to you personally? The only person who answers is Peter, who tended to speak up for the others even when they didn't ask him to. And we have no way, though, of knowing if Peter is speaking for the twelve, or if he's speaking just for himself, or if the Holy Spirit has come upon him and now he's giving a divine revelation from God. We, 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 it just, we aren't told. But we'll get to this in a minute. But mark it. Don't miss this. The question of Jesus' identity is the most important question anybody could ever ask and get the answer to. It is the question. And its answer is the hinge upon which your eternity swings. It is has to be answered correctly or you will suffer eternal torment in hell forever. And Luke is working hard to show us who Jesus is. Yes, he's a real person. Yes, he's fully human. Yes, he is divine, fully God. It is proved by what he said. It is proved by what he did. And Herod asked the right question. Who is this man? And beloved of God, you need to have the right answer to this question. You got to have it right. Not who is Jesus according to the masses, who is Jesus according to your parents, or according to me, or according to the general consensus of Christians, or the media. But who is Jesus according to you yourself? You know, finish this sentence. I, put your name in the blank, believe that Jesus is... What? Who? 
Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, Jack, you know, there's a lot to say about Jesus. I mean, you know, John even says that, you know, all the the books in the world could not contain all of the things, you know, about him. I'm not asking you about all the books in the world. I'm asking you about your book. What does your book say about Jesus? What does your mental file say about Jesus? When you look under the dictionary line in your brain, Jesus, what comes after that? Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John seventeen three says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. If you're going to get to heaven, if you have the free gift of eternal life, you have to know Jesus. That is what eternal life is, knowing Jesus. And in the early church, many false teachers arose who promoted all sorts of false views about Jesus. It's amazing. Just after the apostles died, even before that, if you read, you know, Paul's letters, there's constant problems with false teachers and Jude and Peter, false teachers. Well, they really came on strong after the apostles were gone. And so the church said, you know, we we need to do something about this. We need to kind of get a, uh, you know, kind of, let's all get together and kind of make a distilled, you know, concentrated statement, a creed, a saying that we know is true from the scriptures. And then when people come in and the other teachers and people we don't know, we'll run them through the grid of the creed. And if they don't believe this, then we'll keep them out. So what is the, what is the most important thing? And one of the early one of these creeds is the Apostles' Creed. It was written late in the first century or early in the second century it could have been written during the time john was still alive in the island of patmos and you know in the 90s rich mullins wrote a song based on it the creed speaking of christ says this i believe in jesus christ god the father's only son our lord who was conceived by the holy spirit born of the virgin mary suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. End quote. That's a great one. (laughs) That works. Is that your definition? Is that what's in your mental file about Jesus? Later, in 325 A.D., there was another need to be a little bit more definitive. And so, scholars got together and wrote what is called the Nicene Creed. After some minor revisions in 381 A.D., the Nicene Creed says this of Jesus, quote, I believe... In one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. 
And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. End quote. That's even a little better. And you know, you have statements like this, and you think, well, that must have fixed it. No. Because after that, after the Nicene Creed was out, there was still a lot of wrangling about this big issue. The dual natures and single personhood of Jesus. That What I mean by dual natures is that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man and yet one person. The big term, if you want to wow somebody with this, you can write it down in your Bible just to, you know, thump them, is the hypostatic union. Doesn't that sound tough? That's a cool term. Yeah, we're studying the hypostatic union. That is a good two-cent term. And so in 451 AD, scholars assembled at the Council of Chalcedon and wrote a more definitive and lasting definition defending Jesus' full humanity and full deity and single personhood. And this is what they wrote. Now, as I read this, the word substance or subsistence is translated from the word hypostasis, which is the word they get hypostatic from, bringing two things into one. And this is what they wrote. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body. Of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages. But yet, as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary, the virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. Recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and one subsistence, or hypostasis, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earlier times spoke of Him, and our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. End quote. That is good. I mean, you know, you can hardly get more definitive than that. I mean, they're hitting it from every angle you could think of. And believe me, when a whole bunch of scholars get together and wrangle over something for years, that's about as concise as you can get it. That baby is packed with truth. And the question is, is that what you believe about Jesus? Now, you may be out there be thinking, well, you know, I don't have really, a, you know, the Jack Hughes Creed or whatever. I don't have my own personal creed. Um... You know, I believe things about Jesus. Martha, the sister of Lazarus, had it right when she confessed to Jesus in John eleven twenty seven. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God who comes into the world. I believe you are the Christ. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you came into the world. 
And I know most of you probably don't have some creed all written out for your own self. Some of you may have memorized one of these other creeds. In some churches, they read them almost every week. Some churches pretty much every week. But everything you know about Jesus and believe about Jesus is your creed. The question is, what's in your creed? And if your own creed doesn't state that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that he is born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life of righteousness and was crucified for sinners, buried and resurrected on the third day, that he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God and coming again to judge the living and the dead, you need to fix your creed. Because that is the truth. And that truth matters with how you live your life. Now, if you need a very concise definition, we'll find it in our next point. Who is Jesus according to God? You know, men have different opinions, but God's opinion matters most. And the correct answer is always given by God. Because God's never wrong. Look at the middle of verse 20. And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. That's pretty concise. The Christ of God. Matthew gives us a more complete version of Peter's answer in Matthew 16, 16, which is the parallel text. Peter responded, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Another important statement that Matthew includes, which Mark and Luke leave out, but which is important to understanding our text, is what Jesus said right after Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is what Jesus said right after that. In Matthew 16, 17, Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Bar-Jonah being son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now what does this tell us? It tells us Peter received the right answer by divine revelation. This is why it's difficult to discern whether or not Peter was speaking for the twelve, speaking for himself, or at that moment the Holy Spirit came upon him and he uttered it by divine revelation. Regardless, he had the right answer because it was God's answer. Peter spoke on behalf of God, having received God's revelation. Now, what's very interesting, if you read John's gospel, John makes it very clear, especially early early on in Jesus' ministry, that the disciples believed Jesus was the Messiah and believed he was the Son of God. So what's going on here? Why now, later in Jesus' ministry, is Jesus trying to get them to admit or come to understand who he is if they already did? Well, this is why. Do you remember what happened with John the Baptist? Do you remember when he was in prison, how he sent his disciples to Jesus and they asked him, are you the expected one? Do you remember that discussion? Most of you were probably here. Well, what's the deal? John was the forerunner. John baptized Jesus. John knew he was the Lamb of God. John heard the voice out of heaven. This is my son. Listen to him. What do you mean by telling me to have your disciples come and say, Are you the expected one? No, duh. It seems very clear, doesn't it? To us, it seems like, well, why did they have to do that again? Well, what was wrong? Was John being confused? Was he being starved? Is he being delirious? No. This was it. The Jews knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew that when the Messiah came, he would overthrow Gentile powers and exalt the nation of Israel. 
And so early on, when Jesus came on the scene, was doing all these things, I thought, man, this is the Messiah, man. This guy's, he's got some big guns. I mean, this guy, he, he's, he's the one we've been waiting for. He's going to take out Rome. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to exalt us as a nation. And then what happened? It didn't happen. As a matter of fact, Jesus started doing less. The disciples started doing more. No army was raised. Rome was not overthrown. And now the disciples are thinking, hmm. And we've seen the miracles and stuff. But I, you know, I just, they just didn't understand. It was commonly believed among the Jews that the Messiah would be a great military leader and that he would overthrow Rome, and he didn't. But Luke has succeeded in answering the all-important question which Herod first asks earlier in the text, who is this man? And Luke has answered it by saying, well, he's somebody who can feed, you know, 5, 10, 15,000 people by multiplying bread out of nothing. He's not who the masses think he is. But Peter had it right because he got his answer from God. And God is always right. I am Christ, the son of the living God. That is the right answer. Now this leads us to our fourth point. So Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And you would think by now you're thinking, oh, great. Well, knowing who Jesus is should cause you to live by faith. And you would think that the disciples now, since Jesus asked them specifically, he asked them specifically, and not only asked them specifically, but said, who do they say I am? Who do you say I am? That's the divine answer. That Jesus would say, all right, guys, let's get out there and tell them who I am. The Messiah is here. The King of Kings is here. The Redeemer is here. The righteous branch of David. The King of Kings is going to rule on David's throne and exalt Israel. Get out there and tell them who I am. And what does he say? Look at verse 21. But he warned them, instructed them not to tell this to anyone. Ah! And when you think about that, in light of all the statements where Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. And we're going to see this next week. <laughs> You're thinking, oh, what's going on here? Why, why this definitive definition of who Jesus is followed by, and no, don't tell anybody. What's interesting is the New American Standard translated, he warned and instructed, but the New King James Version says strictly warned and commanded, and the English Standard Version translates it strictly charged and commanded. This is serious. After Jesus says, Peter, Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father is in heaven, and otherwise you have the right answer. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, and don't you dare tell anybody. That seems very strange. Why not? Well, because of verse 22. Look there. Jesus was undergoing what is called his humiliation. He knew he still had to die for the sins of men before he could be exalted and received as the king. So Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. This is the first of three instances where Luke predicts Jesus' death. The other instance is in verse 44, Luke 9, 44, and then later on in Luke 18, 31 through 33. But the reason why Jesus didn't want his followers going around saying, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, 
is because Jesus needed to die and pay the penalty for sin so he could be the Savior. He needed to fulfill all those Old Testament prophecies. He needed to be buried and rise again from the dead, conquering death so that he could take with him all those who would die thereafter. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. It had to happen. God had to allow him to be killed so that he could then be resurrected. He would not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. And so... The Jews should have figured this out, but they just didn't see it. When they looked at the Old Testament scriptures, they saw the Messiah coming, suffering, but not dying, overthrowing Rome and setting up a kingdom. They didn't see the first and second comings. That was foreign to their thinking. But the logic would have told the Jews that this had to happen. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. The author of Hebrews, speaking about this, says, For the law, since it is only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And if you read in Hebrews 8 through 10, you'll see this fundamental argument that you cannot atone for the sins of a man with the sins of an animal. You have to have a perfect human who is willing to lay down their life for an imperfect human. And I'm telling you, they're hard to come by. And so that is why God, in the fullness of time, sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born under the law, so that He could live a perfect life, so He could willingly die and offer Himself up a sacrifice for the sins of unworthy sinners. Here we are. And so that is why Jesus said, don't tell anybody. It's don't tell anybody until I do what I've come to do. I fulfill the prophecies and fulfill my final goal in coming, which is to die for the sins of men. Then after that, you have to tell me. And if you don't, I will deny you before the Father. But the greatest question you can ask and answer is, who is Jesus? And the answer is, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we all need to understand this. And not only that, we all need to live by it. You know the truth. You know who Jesus is. You know what he did. You know he's the Savior. So what? Well, the so what is, so live your life. In light of that truth. If you need a modern day example, look in the mirror. Do you ever know what is right to do and not do it? Sure, there's a name for that. James says, whoever knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is what? Sin. You bet. And there's two kinds of people who sin, believers and unbelievers, which pretty much covers it, doesn't it? 
Unbelievers do nothing but sin, and unbelievers who know the truth have a choice, either to sin or not sin, but they sin regularly anyways. It's just that they receive forgiveness, confess their sin, and turn back to follow the Lord. But do not be deceived. Knowledge is not a synonym for obedience. You need to have knowledge so you can can obey, but knowledge by itself is not obeying. And for a church like Calvary Bible Church, this is a very present, ever-present danger. Because I'm telling you, we're into giving truth out here. You attend here, you are getting pounded with the word. You, You can't escape it. The children get it, the youth get it, the adults get it. You get it at every event, every retreat, every Calvary Review, every sermon, every Sunday school class, every discipleship group. Every music event, you cannot escape. We will not let you. And anyone who chooses to get involved in this local body will grow fat with the knowledge of the Bible. It is inescapable. But growing fat with Bible knowledge doesn't mean you are walking by faith. It merely means you're more accountable to God because of what you've been given. Turn over to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Jesus is teaching about the need to be ready at his second coming. And then in verse 41, Peter says, Lord, you speaking to me? That's kind of the Philly version. Um, He says, Lord... Are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? Then Jesus gives another parable. Look at it. Chapter 12, verse 42 and following. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, My master will not be, will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and to get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrust much, of him they will ask the more. Now without exegeting this entire parable, the lesson is simple. The faithful and unfaithful slave both receive knowledge and both receive resources to do the master's will. The faithful slave lives according to the knowledge and resources he has received and does the master's will. The unfaithful slave does not. When the master shows up unexpectedly at an hour they do not know, the faithful slave is rewarded. The unfaithful slave is executed and hacked into pieces. Which one are you? Which one are you? 
The summary of all this is found in the latter half of verse 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask the more. Beloved, you have been given much by way of knowledge and opportunity just by being here. I mean, the bulletin is just, when you look at the bulletin, think of condemnation for not obeying. There are so many opportunities there. They're just crying out to you. Okay, here's your opportunity. I don't know if you're saved or not saved, but I know that there are some in both categories here this morning, and you must live according to what you know. If you are not living for Christ, serving, giving, reading your Bible, praying, loving Christ, seeking to give him glory in all that you do, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm just talking about as the general pattern of your life. Don't ever hope that you're going to heaven. You call him Savior, but he's not your Savior. You call him Lord, but he's not your Lord. You do not do what he says. You do not follow him. You do not love him. Oh, you throw him a few crumbs. That is not Christianity. That is not walking by faith. There is hell for people like that. But there is a solution. God has provided for your sins by sending the Christ, the Son of the living God, to die on the cross for you in substitution for your sins. So that you, if you are willing to believe, not just in the data, but believe so as to trust, receive, follow Jesus, turning from your sins, he will save you, he will put his Holy Spirit within you, and he himself will cause you to walk in his ways. He who begins a good work in you will perfect that work until the day of Christ Jesus. He will do it. And that's how you know whether you're in or out. So you have to let go of selfishness, let go of your sin, your pride, your greed, your desire to have your own control, things your own way, your pleasures or whatever. You turn from that and you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in only in who he is and what he did to save you. You do that, God will change you. He will make you into a new creature and he will put you on the right path and you will never be the same. He can do it. Cry out to him. And the judgment you deserve will be spent upon the Savior's head instead of you. And knowing that truth must change the way you live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have seen such a great introduction to our text next week. Father, that... Jesus is going to give some very hard calls, very hard calls to his disciples and to us about what it means to be his follower. I pray this text caused us to search our hearts. If there's anybody here who doesn't know you, who just knows about you, who realizes they haven't been born again, they haven't been transformed, that they are in fact headed for hell, and that if you came back like you could any moment, they would not be rewarded but condemned. I pray that right now they would cry out in their hearts and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, confess their sins and make a commitment to turn from their sins and to follow you. That they would believe not just with a mind, but with a will. That anyone who wills to receive your son, you give the gift of eternal life and call them your children. And Father, for the rest of us who know you, I pray that 
our consciences would be soft. And if there are areas in our life where we know we aren't giving you glory because of rationalizing, because of justifications or whatever, or pleasures, that we would confess those and that we would be a holy church, a church that love you with all our mind, all our soul, with all our heart and all our strength. Help us to be this way for your glory and our blessing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.